Hello everyone, this is the 8th episode of Bible Beyond, and today we're going to be studying the passage where Jesus offers rest to us. This passage is Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30 It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I like to think of this as kind of a John 3.16 kind of passage. And what I mean by that is, John 3.16 is the verse that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this verse, John 3.16, is a great way of summarizing the gospel uh, in a very short set of words. And I would say that this passage that we're looking at right now, Matthew 11.25-30, is also a set of verses that does a great job of explaining why we need the gospel and how we have it. But unlike John 3.16... This passage compares our life before Christ to work or toil, and our life afterward as rest. So today we're going to be learning what all that means, how we get this rest, and why we can have it in the first place. All this and more on Bible Beyond. So when we typically think of rest, what we typically think of is not working, right? Like we we cease our work and our daily responsibilities for a moment in order to achieve rest. That's kind of what rest is for us today. In fact, a lot of people will go on vacation where they physically dislocate themselves from their daily responsibilities and their work in order to rest. And there can be a lot of benefits to resting. If we can rest and rejuvenate ourselves and then come back to our work to do it more effectively and more efficiently, then we're actually doing the will of God. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. In fact, God himself actually rested on the seventh day after he had made all of creation. So, if rest helps us get back to our work and do it better, then by all means, rest can be very beneficial. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. 
See, when we apply this uh, modern definition of rest to our spiritual lives, what does that get us? Well, if rest in our modern world is taking a break from our daily responsibilities and our work, then spiritually that seems like it would mean ceasing to fight sin or to stop talking to God, to stop studying his word, to stop worshiping him. Those spiritual healthy activities, it seems if we apply this definition of rest to our spiritual lives, then we should stop those spiritual habits. But as we know, that's not a good idea. That's not obviously what God wants us to do. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The point here is that no matter what, if we're suffering or if we're cheerful, if good things have happened, in any circumstance, in any case, we are still supposed to follow through with those spiritual activities. We're not supposed to fall back with those habits. We're supposed to continue for the Lord. So if this isn't the definition of rest that Jesus is using, then what does he mean when he says, come to me and I will give you rest? If we're not supposed to cease those spiritual habits, then what are we supposed to do in order to get this rest? Well, in this passage, Jesus compares life in him as rest and work or at least the opposite of rest, as suffering under the effects of our sins. That's what we see in the passage. I really like this analogy that Jesus uses uh, in verse verse, um, 29. It says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this set of verses, Jesus compares a yoke as the type of life that we live, whether it be away from Christ or with him. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, in those days, a yoke was used on animals in order to make it possible for them to pull something. So the animals would be strapped onto this wooden beam that went across their shoulders and neck, and that allowed them to work in the field and to toil. That's what the yoke allowed them to do. And the reason that I like this analogy so much is because the toil that those animals uh, did in order to um, you know, farm the crops or something like that, it really is a great analogy for the kind of toil that we experience under the effects of our sin. I just want to go over a few examples in order to uh, get my point across. First of all, insecurity. This is the fear that we won't be good enough, that we won't be perfect, that we won't live up to the standards that either we have set for ourselves or the standard to be perfect, just as Christ is. No one lives up to that. And that fear of insecurity, that fear of not being perfect, can be a major toil or a burden that we have to carry. And not only that, but what happens when we aren't perfect? 
What happens when the fears that we experience due to insecurity are actually real and we find out we're not the person who we're supposed to be? Well, that leads to guilt because we aren't good enough. We haven't lived up to the standards that we should have. We've made mistakes. We've fallen short. And that leads to guilt. But as bad as this sounds, as guilt and insecurity may seem when we have those feelings, this is only compounded by hopelessness. And hopelessness arises from the fact that we can't be perfect. We will always fall short in one way or another. Hopelessness arises because of the fact that there's nothing we can do to change the state of humankind. There's nothing that we can do to change our sinful nature. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy before God. And thus, not only the fear that we won't be perfect, but the guilt about how we haven't been perfect will persist in our daily lives. But what Jesus does is he frees us from these conditions. He lets us go from the toil and the burden of uh, this insecurity and this fear, this guilt. It actually says in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When Jesus When God loves us, then there's no fear. There's no need for insecurity. And this makes a lot of sense because if a powerful God that loves, that can do anything, whatever he wants, who created everything, actually loves us, if he loves us, then there's nothing to fear. If someone that great loves you, then there's no reason to be afraid of what may come or who you are. And this is why it says, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Because in God's love, we realize that there is no need for punishment. The punishment of not being perfect, of being humans and being sinful, no longer applies to us because we've been perfected in love. Not only this, but it's but Jesus brings forgiveness to the guilty. Again, First John uh, 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Basically, what he's saying here is that if we come to God admitting that we have sins and we are not faithful, He actually is faithful to remove that toiling and that burden off of us. That's why Romans 8.1 can say, For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, when a God so powerful who loves you so much makes your record clean, who makes you faithful and just, when we're not unrighteousness, then there's no need for guilt. There's no need to dwell on our mistakes. And for those who are hopeless, who are still stuck in this rut of 
being afraid of who they are and what they've done, well, Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy, joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It says that this comes through believing, through believing that by Jesus' sacrifice we no longer have anything to fear. And this brings us hope, hope for the future and hope for what God has in store for us. But you may be wondering, how does Jesus do this? How can Jesus say that he can give us rest? And how does he give us such a light yoke? How does he relieve us from this stress, from the effects of our sin? Well, the reason that we're in the effects of our sin, the reason that we toil in the first place is because, again, we are not perfect. We've done bad things and we are not going to live up to who we should be. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We haven't been as perfect as Jesus. We haven't uh, remained as perfect people. And because of that, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We no longer reside with God. And therefore, this rest that God gives, we don't have. Because we're without the peace that God has, and we are with the effects of our sin. So this sin separates us, it isolates us from God, and with the fear, and the guilt that's laid upon us. So how does Jesus rescue us from that sin, from the effects of our sin? Well, when Jesus came to earth, he died in our place and went through the suffering that we would have to go through in order to save us from the effects of our sin. And therefore, without the effects of our sin, allow us to be reunited with God. In other words, uh, this separation that we have between us and God that's been caused by our sin, by the fact that we're not perfect, Jesus experienced all of that on the cross for every single person that they may be reunited with God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be, no, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. What he's saying here is that Jesus, who was perfect, who lived a perfect life without any need for insecurity or guilt, he on the cross suffered the effects of our sin. He went through all the things uh, that we suffer today at a great magnitude. And because of this, we are righteous. Because he's paid our punishment, the effects of our sin, we are now, as it says here, the righteousness of God. And through him, we receive this rest that Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus took on the effects of our sin, there's nothing to separate us from God and from us, therefore giving us rest. The passage, uh, or at least our original passage, says, 
all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What he's saying here is that because he, at least Jesus, is intimate and knows God more than anybody, because they know each other, because they're so close, we have to go through Jesus in order to get to God the Father. We need Jesus' atonement and his ability in his name in order to come back to God and experience that rest. And it only happens through Jesus. It only happens when everything we've done is forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. When he suffered and died for those sins, only then can we come to the Father. So now that we know what rest is in the spiritual sense, now that we know how Jesus has made it possible for us and why we need this rest, I want to discuss how we can accept this rest that Jesus gives us. He says it right here in verse 25. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, at first glance, uh, this passage may seem a little strange. That is verse 25, because it says that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And it seems like wise and understanding, having wisdom and being able to understand would only benefit us so that we could accept this rest. In fact, wisdom is a major attribute of God. There's an entire book written about wisdom by Solomon. We call it Proverbs. And it tells us all about wisdom and how we should live our lives by this character characteristic of God that is wisdom. So why then has God hidden these things? Why has he hidden these this rest from the wise and understanding? Well, in that day, Jesus was referring not to people who were wise and knew their Proverbs. He was actually referring to the Pharisees. And back in that day, the Pharisees knew the law of God front to back. They knew everything about it. They taught the law. They um, were leaders in the law throughout Israel. And because of that, they knew it very, very well. Now, you may say, okay, well, knowing the law of God, knowing about the Old Testament uh, covenant and all of that, well, wouldn't that make it easier to um, accept Jesus' forgiveness? Well, maybe, but in this case, the Pharisees trusted in the law for their salvation. They trusted in the law instead of the God who gave them the law. And there's a big difference in that small little detail. Because God gave them the law, the Old Testament law, in order so that the Israelites could be somewhat close to God and that Jesus could one day come to earth. But instead of 
waiting and being excited when Jesus came to um, accept his forgiveness, they were unable to accept his gift because they trusted in their ability to fulfill the law. But then Jesus compares and contrasts the Pharisees or the wise and the understanding of the day to children. He says in our original passage, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And this actually comes up a few different times in the Bible. For instance, uh, in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, uh, the idea of children coming into the kingdom of heaven arises again. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is that in order to uh, have a relationship with the Father through Jesus and to be in heaven, we need to humble ourselves like children. Now, why does he use children as an example? Why does he assume that they have the kind of humbleness uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, think about it this way. Children, when their father does something, they always trust their father. They don't know what he does when he goes to work. They don't know why he goes to work. They don't know how he gets food from the grocery store. He, they don't know how he gets this house to pay for, for them to be allowed to sleep. The child doesn't understand how his father does all of these things, but they still trust their father. Because even though they're children, they realize that their father is much smarter and knows a lot more than they do. And because of that, they can trust him. Because of that gap in power, that gap in ability, they lean and trust on their father no matter what. They rely on him. But the Pharisees, remember, they're wise and understanding. They're confident in their ability to accomplish the law. So when Jesus comes and says, you have to trust me like a father, as children, they're unable to do so. Because that means rejecting the fact that they can do it by themselves in order to make themselves perfect. It means rejecting the idea that they can accomplish and get to heaven through the law. So that's why he says to become like children, to humble yourselves and to realize that evidently you are not perfect, to realize that God is perfect, to recognize the gap in between you and God. But most importantly, to accept the forgiveness of Jesus that allows us to enter the kingdom of heaven.
Now, for those of you who don't know God, who aren't Christian, who don't trust in Jesus for your salvation, you don't receive rest from him, I would encourage you to do so. To trust specifically in Jesus Christ for your rest, for your salvation. I would encourage you to recognize the fact that you are sinful, that that's where your insecurity and your guilt and hopelessness arises from. But also, to those who are already Christian, it's always important to come back and reflect on these ideas, to continually rededicate our lives to Christ and receive that rest. And on that note, I'd like to close us off in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the fact that you sent your son to die for us on a cross to make that way available for us to receive your rest. Thank you so much for creating this uh, rest and this ability to escape from the toil of the effects of our sins. Please help us humble ourselves and be able to accept that we are not perfect and therefore accept Jesus's forgiveness. Please make us like little children so that we can trust in your forgiveness and not in our own ability to bring us to heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been the eighth episode of Bible Beyond. I'd like to give a special thank you to my grandpa for creating this great music that you're listening to right now. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, check back with us when we have another episode up and ready. But for now, have a great day.